0: Welcome to Great Minds and today we have an absolutely incredible, incredible treat. Our guest today, known around the world as Agent 99 of Get Smart fame, is the one and only Barbara Felden. Welcome Barbara.
1: Thank you. It's so nice to be here.
0: Well, this is just an an incredible honor to talk to you. Barbara, we were talking earlier, and I know you come from the Pennsylvania area around Pittsburgh and went to a great, great school at uh, Carnegie Institute of Technology, Bachelor of Arts in Drama. And I'd love to start, not where we just were talking about, we'll come back to that, to your days with Revlon working in advertising, but I'd love to start by an intriguing little tidbit that our crack research team uncovered. And that is that you are a winner in the category of William Shakespeare on the $64,000 question. Is that true?
2: Revlon, the greatest name in cosmetics, presents the 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. Yes, the $64,000 question.
1: Yes, it's true. At the time... I, would, I had come to New York, I had just come to New York and um, to be an actor. And I, I was thrilled to get a job as a showgirl in a remake of the Ziegfeld Follies. And uh, so I was walking to music in skimpy costumes and huge headdresses and so forth. And the people who ran the $64,000 question we're curious as to whether a showgirl who wore feathers and you know sequins had a brain, so they gave us a test, all of the showgirls, there were like eight of us, and they gave us a test that was so stupid, and it was like, which is smarter, a chicken or a mouse, you know, and we were making fun of it. we were exchanging answers you know. And when the article came out, oh, this was the New York Times, excuse me, it wasn't the, the show. Um, when the article came out in the Sunday Times in the magazine with pictures of all of us lady, you know, ladies, I, I, it, they said I got a perfect score, which was a very low bar and also the, 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 something that made me very unpopular in the dressing room. And then the sixty-four thousand dollar question picked up on that, and they asked me to come in, and I said no because I wasn't an expert on anything. And uh, but around that time, I had met this very glamorous Frenchman, which is he's the subject of my book, actually. And um, she said, "No, this would be great for your career. It'd be great exposure. Think of something you can be an expert on." And I I was, at the time, had these sort of intellectual projects. I was going to read all of Shakespeare's plays in a year. And uh, so I thought, okay, why don't I get a volume of the complete works of Shakespeare and then begin memorizing every trivial fact about Shakespeare? I was a really good memorizer. And uh, so I went to see them, and I, I proposed that. And they said they would be willing to give me three months to cram, which I did. And every night after the show, I'd go back to my cold water flat on the fifth floor and I'd sit cross-legged on the floor. And I'd have all these books, the books and notes on the bed. And I would, to keep myself awake so that I I could study all, all night, I would hold a sneaker in each hand. And so my arms would ache. So I'd stay awake. And so I just crammed and crammed. And then the three months was up and they said, Will you come in and do you mind taking a test? So I took a test, and I guess I knew enough. And uh, so they said, Great, and they put me on the show. And I thought this is going to last one session. <laughs> well, I'm going to go down in flames uh, on the first question. And then, to my surprise, the questions were quite easy, and I think they were sort of aimed at my knowledge. And uh, they told me at the time that they made it easy for the guests the first couple of times out. They didn't, you know, want them to tank immediately. And so it went on like that through the whole, through the whole. However many sessions it took me to win the sixty-four thousand dollar question. And I won it. And the book is very much about what happened to the money, and and it had a, a rather interesting fate.
0: Well, let, let, let's talk about the book because you brought it up. Obviously, we're going to get into Get Smart and, and and so much more. But let's talk about the book.
1: Okay, well, Get Smart is of course in the book because this covers the years that I was doing at least the first part of Get. Well, it covers. It covers from the time I met this guy up until the present, actually. Um, it, I mean, because it's a memoir, but the core of the book is this relationship with this unbelievably glamorous man who I married and then discovered two years later, all in one night, that I had no idea who I had married. And his life, which was extraordinarily adventuresome, uh, it, it swept me into that. And there were, there were times when I thought I was being followed by the KGB, which was sort of ironic later because I probably was wearing the same trench coat that I wore in Get Smart when I was being followed by chaos. So right.
2: it's
1: um, art imitating life in a, in a funny way. But anyway, the book is it's it's fun. It, it's such a the reason I wrote it wasn't that I thought my life was so important. It should have a memoir. I would never have written a memoir, but the story is so good. And everyone said, you have to tell this story. And so I did
0: uh, amazing. So let's go to uh, what we were talking about before we got on the air, which early on, Work you did for Revlon and a soft spot for the advertising world.
2: I've just discovered a secret weapon, a way for women to conquer the world with their eyelashes. It's Fabulash. Fabulash, Revlon's new lash lengthener and mascara that colors your lashes and makes them longer. Repeat longer. Just brush it on, changes ordinary eyelashes into extraordinary eyelashes. Longer, silkier, dominating. And look, inside the fabulash box is another box, small but powerful. It's a super lengthener, an extra Revlon secret to make your lashes extra, extra long. Get Revlon's new lash lengthener. It's simply fabulous. Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, I had such really almost romantic memories about working in advertising. I uh, it was 19, oh gosh, nineteen sixty, probably it was a very short stint. Um, I gave up acting in when I was about 28 years old, I wasn't getting anywhere. And I knew a very famous model and she took me under her wing and she kind of shaped me up and got me slimmed down and taught me how to use eyelashes. (laughs) And, um, and so for about four years, three, three or four years. I had a, a really nice run as a model, and then being under contract to Revlon, I gave up the modeling and just did commercials for them. But at that time, it was such a glamorous time in New York City. i It was the Kennedy years, you know, and and it, everything was glamorous. I mean the the way we dressed, the it was going to the Oak room at the Plaza Hotel and I, you know, in your imitation Chanel suit with those long strands of usually imitation pearls, (laughs) you know, everything was glamorous imitation. But it was, I want to use the word swell. I I mean, it really was a glamorous kind of time where there were these wonderful restaurants, the advertising had such creative talent. Doyle, Dane, and Burnback. Of course. Incredible commercials. Uh, The commercial I did for Revlon that I'm known for was uh, created by actually a writer. He wasn't actually an advertising man. And uh, they hired him to create something for me. Mr. Revson had seen me in another commercial and thought, well, she might be good for top brass, which is man's hairdressing, and he's the one who wrote the commercial that I that I did for several years for them. It it was fascinating to see the inner workings of Revlon. It's such a power structure, like sort of like the Kremlin (laughs) in a way. Right. And um, and so I enjoyed that and I enjoyed being a model. I enjoyed traveling actually when it comes right down to it it was much more glamorous and mind expanding than doing a series was because you're doing the series you're going to the same place every day you're doing kind of the same you know look out next (laughs) same thing every day for year after year this was going to libya to do a spread for you know, a French magazine, or going to Rome or Paris, and it was it, it it was lovely. The whole little package of my adventure in advertising was just something I treasure.
0: And, and hearing you talk about it, there was a romance to it, also.
1: Yeah, there was. Uh, you were working with people who were extraordinarily talented. And it was, they, they were competing with each other. Um, uh, Pappard, Kerning, and Lois, uh, Fred Pappard. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were a cutting edge, threesome, uh, threesome, I think. Am I right about that? Yeah,
0: yeah, and George Lois, absolute legend, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Fred be- became a dear, dear friend to me many, many years later, mm. you know, long after Get Smart and everything we sat next to each other in a, at a concert and we became just absolutely, you know, joined at the heart from then on. Oh
0: my goodness, incredible. So somewhere along the line, you wind your way back to acting and end up uh, in a guest starring role along with George C. Scott in a TV drama, East Side, West Side. Yeah. Uh, and that was produced by Talent Associates which was also developing Get Smart at that time. Can we talk about that, working with George C. Scott and that era, which really led direct, very directly to uh, Agent 99 and Get Smart?
1: Yes, that that was overlapping the Revlon. I continued doing the commercials for Revlon for a couple of years uh, after I began doing television. Um, it's funny in life how the smallest little decision can absolutely change the direction of your life. I, was, I had given up acting, I was under contract to Revlon, making very good money for the time. You know, I had a contract with them, it's really nice. And my agent, my acting agent called me and said, you know, there's a one line thing in George Scott's series East Side West Side which was very gritty it only lasted a year unfortunately it was beautifully written um and I loved the series but you know it was one line and here I was doing all this wonderful stuff for Revlon and I said no you know I I said you know to go all the way out to Queens to do one line And my agent said, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said nothing. And he said, get in a cab and go out to Queens where they're shooting and do the line. You know, you know, Okay. so I did. I did my line with George. Now, I had had dinner with he and his wife, Colleen Dewhurst. fairly recently, but I was so intimidated by George C. Scott, you know, that I didn't approach him on the set. I mean, Colleen was my friend. I didn't dare think I was a friend of George's. And um, so we did the scene. It was a disco scene. I did my little one line, and it was between takes. And Colleen walks on the set. She had come to visit George. And she saw me, and she said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm doing this line. And she said, Come on into George's dressing room. And so I followed her in there. And George was there. And he said, Oh, I've seen you on this commercial. And he said, Would you be willing to play my girlfriend next week? I mean, willing? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I was willing. I was more than willing. And so I did. I got to play opposite George C. Scott in um uh, in a romantic relationship in that episode. And I I mean I thought I I'd, I'd grab the golden ring, you know, I was so thrilled. And uh Talent Associates produced that show. They produced another show called Mr. Broadway and it was with Craig Stevens. And so they cast me uh, as an industrial spy. And it was just a spoofy role in a jumpsuit, you know, with a sassoon haircut. And it was tongue-in-cheek. And she was very kind of sexy and, and you know, harmless. and um, And so I did it. And at the same time, they were developing the script. Dan Melnick, who was one of the partners and talent associates, came up with the idea of doing a really extreme comic version of a Bond, James Bond kind of thing. And uh, they hired Buck Henry and um, Mel Brooks, and they came up with the script. And when talent associates read the script, they said, That's her that character is her and so i didn't audition anything they offered me the role i read it and i laughed out loud i thought it was absolutely marvelous writing and i turned it down because i didn't want to leave new york city and i I was married and i didn't want to go out to california and they said i had to i had to uh sign a five-year contract and I thought, I'll be ancient by then. My life will be over. I'll be 37 by the end of five years. That'll be the end of everything. So I said no. And and then they came back and said, will you do it for two years? And I said, yeah, sure. With an option for three more years for both of us. So I could go away. So, of course, after doing it for two years, I wasn't going to hand my number over some other
0: actor. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Incredible. So let's talk about uh, the origin of the show, which you mentioned. It was inspired by James Bond and the rise of the let's call him the serious, even though a lot of those early Bond movies were quite campy in many ways. But this was a spoof of all those. And at that time, Mel Brooks had already done your show of shows, of course, with Sid Caesar, Buck Henry, another great writer. But this was their first big foray into a sitcom, uh, which was incredibly progressive uh, at that time in so many ways, as was your character, Agent 99. Talk about remembrances of Buck and Mel from those early days. And this goes all the way back to 1965.
1: Yeah. Uh, Mel, of course, was. And that was part of those early 60s brilliant You know what was going on in he was a new york writer and um, so was buck and they were both pushing the envelope you know i knew both of them i i knew their work i didn't know them personally but you know they were on the jack parr show and i and i was so impressed with them so the script was every bit as brilliant as as it should have been because they were who they were. Um, I never met them, nor did I meet Don Adams until the first day of shooting the pilot. That day, I never had a meeting with them beforehand that I can recall. Uh, Don never met me. Uh, They showed him some footage of me with Craig Stevens playing the spy. And uh, he told a funny funny story about it. He said that he watched some of it, and he said, she's perfect. You know, she's the right, just the right tone for 99. And he said, I got up to walk away, and I just sort of glanced back at, at, the, at the screen just when Craig Stevens and she stood up. And she was as tall as Craig Stevens, who was one of the tallest actors in Hollywood. <laughs> So Don and I, from the very beginning, had this height thing that um, where we were always trying to diminish my height and kind of enhance his.
0: Amazing! And the earliest pilots, and I went back and watched all of them. What's amazing, Barbara, after all these years, it's still funny.
1: It's still funny. And I'm not someone who watches herself over and over. I mean, I saw them when they were made back then. I never looked at them again. And occasionally I'll go somewhere, maybe make an appearance or something. They'll play an episode. And I'm I don't remember it. You know, I remember the clothes. I always remember the wardrobe, but not the episode. And uh, and I laugh out loud. It's just universally funny. And I think that uh, that's their brilliance. And to get back to them for a second, um, Mel I saw very occasionally once the show was made. Uh, He had many other projects and he uh, was not a hands-on every week thing that, that Buck was for two years. So Buck was on the set every day, you know, for two years. He'd stop in and, you know, and we, we grew to have such an affection for him. He was so unusual, so dear, so, so off the wall. And he wasn't one of these comedic presences that demand your attention. He was very laid back, very quiet, and he would just slip in these sly comments that were utterly original and wonderful. Uh, Go
0: ahead. No, no, just just um, um, uh, it's just incredible to hear you talk about Mel and Buck Henry. Uh, You know, the show was not a hit in many ways. It never was at the top of the charts. I think it ended up at Route number 12 at its peak, ran for five years. Obviously, an incredible part of culture and that we're talking today in 2023 about a show that ran from 1965 to 1970 says everything that's relevant. What do you think it was about the show that gave it such life and such relevance all these years later? Was it the writing? Was it the acting? Was it all of it? It's bigger today in many ways. And, you know, stands so high on top of the Hollywood mountain. And it's really withstood the test of time. So many other shows, Barbara, from that era are just gone forever, get smart. And so many of the expressions that came out of it have become part of culture that it, you know, you know where it comes from, it comes missed by that much. That's get smart.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's so many catchphrases that came from it. Uh, why has it enjoyed? Uh, first of all, you know, it, it was a huge success at the beginning. Right, no,
0: um, I'm not knocking it at all, but it was no, never no, like good. number one in the ratings yeah, for f- yeah, five. Yeah, you
1: know. No, but it it was number one the first year, and 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 I I don't know, I didn't watch ratings. All I knew is that they were coming and reporting ratings all the time. <laughs> I wasn't a big TV watcher. I was just happy to be employed, but um, but toward the end, it just got tired, you know. And then they began to add things to kind of inject it with a little adrenaline like marrying them which i think everyone agreed was a mistake and i and then them having twins it kind of domesticated it and it took i mean anytime you marry the the two characters the uh, that takes away a big you know conflict where one is trying to get the other to marry her, you know, and right. uh, once that's settled, it kind of it takes the air out of the balloon a little bit, I think. But um, it, it's what it is, probably mainly because of the writing, I think, probably 80% of it is the writing. And the other 20% is just the lucky chemistry, which nobody had any idea was going to work because nobody ever saw Don and uh, Ed Platt who played chief and me together ever. And so you never know, you know, what that's going to be. And they must have heaved a huge sigh of relief when they, they saw that their, that energy between the three of us, which I think is what people call chemistry, I, I was there. And that was like a miracle. Oh,
0: a- absolute magic. A- and as you said, you never met Don or, I imagine, Edward Platt either until you were on the set.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were standing on our marks, ready to shoot the scene. And it's like, I mean, I'm Don, I'm Barbara.
0: Oh, my gosh. So let's talk about let's talk about Don Adams a little bit. Okay. What incredible chemistry the two of you had. Uh, He was both brilliant, comical, and yet remarkably competent as a character in his feigning incompetence. just an incredible character. What was that like working with Don and some of your fondest remembrances?
1: Yeah, it, Don was the energy in the show, which is so important. His sense of timing, his his drive, the staccato beat of him, like a drummer, you know, just moving that thing forward. And I, uh, my tendency is to be laid back and to be very natural and to be on the soft side. And he pulled me into his orbit and yet i softened that metallic edge of max and and helped make him more lovable seen through 99's eyes uh which was a little mechanism that was just beautiful and uh instinctive on our parts and and i and ed Platt just bolted us into the ground. He was the gravitas of the trio and it was his, the richness of his voice. He was a singer, you know, he was a trained opera singer. And so he had that huge boom box voice and, uh, and 99 was a softer sort of thing. And Don was just that cutting edge, metallic, bam, bam, bam. So doing a scene with Don, I say in the book, I do talk about the show in the book, um, doing a scene with Don, it was just like, he just took off like a comet and I was just hanging on to the tail of that comet and and for the ride. And
0: and what a ride it was. Four, Four years on NBC, the final season, the fifth season on CBS. Somewhere along the line, it became incredibly in to be a guest star on Guest Smart. And you had some incredible guest stars, Don Rickles, uh, Johnny Carson, Carol Burnett. You got to work with everyone, Barbara.
1: Well, I didn't. <laughs> Don did. I didn't. Um, I, I think I worked with Carol Burnett. Uh, I think I was in that episode. But the episodes where his friends, uh, Johnny Carson, Don Rickles, uh, Jimmy Kahn, uh, when they were on, um, I didn't do every episode. Okay. Or it, there were many episodes where 99 only appeared in The Office. You know, she, she wasn't involved in the action of the story. So when they were on, when those guests were on, the, the script was written around them and okay. and 99 was not part of for the most part was not part of that so um you know i i saw them when they were finished you know right. and john loved doing uh takeoffs on movies because he was a big movie buff i mean just really an encyclopedia of movies so Barbara, the other uh inspiration we talked about bond
0: uh for the show was inspector clouseau and the pink panther and so much of the comedy really mirrors in so many ways uh uh, the great uh inspector clouseau movies and peter sellers but one of the things uh, that we also read about was in many respects agent 99 was viewed as an inspiration to women and a female empowerment figure, you were the first female actor to come back to work. This is in the show, after having had children that that had never happened before. And that for the most part, women in that era were put in a more traditional role. Uh, Did you realize then how history would view Agent 99 as a figure who would inspire other women and was really ahead of her time in many ways.
1: No, I wish I could say I did. And I wish I could say that I was as evolved as the writers were in writing Agent 99 or as Agent 99 was as an entity. Uh, Agent 99 was way more advanced uh, feministically than I was at that time. I, and I think it's interesting that partially, it's my performance as I, as I evolved more as, as a woman, um, my performance of 99 became stronger and a little cheekier. At the beginning of the series, I was very much a 1950s woman who was, you know, extremely deferential to, uh, to men, And and I personally was was not at all adept at putting myself out front or taking the lead in any way. And uh, so I think that 99 was kind of um, a kind of a combination of the 1950s woman where you're you stand behind your guy and and you never humiliate him. You never put him down. You you know, it, it, you always make him feel like he's the one who got the solution, um, so that there was that element of the fifties. But as the series went on, we got more and more into women's independence, and uh, and so it was it was a combination of the fifties, and they were anticipating the women's movement, which was going to really blossom toward the end of the sixties. So, 99 was kind of a transitional, kind of a bridge character between how women were once and how they were becoming, you know, uh, in real time.
0: Uh, so well said. And just to confirm, and then let's move on, because there's so many other parts of your career to talk about, um, but we never learned Agent 99's real name. Is that correct?
1: She never had a name, and I, and I got that from the horse's mouth. <laughs> Buck Henry told me, uh, a few years ago we were having lunch, and he said she never had a name. They were going to name her 100. But he said they felt 99 was more a girl's number. But I think that I think that actually it was more a poetic choice because you look, you wouldn't say, well, a hundred what's happening you but you can say well 99 i mean it's the the alliteration is much it trips off the tongue much more easily so uh but they wanted to give her the highest number and 86 of course is is the word for dumping something to 86 it you know so that's why they gave him that number
0: right right amazing all right I, i can't leave our conversation about get smart without a reference to the cone of silence, which has also stood the test of time, as have so many other expressions. After all these years, you must look back so fondly on being such an iconic part of popular culture and so many things like the cone of silence that have endured the test of time.
2: First of all, how much How much do you know about chaos? What did you say, sir? Chaos. <laughs> what? Chaos. Oh, chaos, yes, of course. Well, that's an international criminal organization that was founded, oh, I think in 1957. How's that? What? 57. Agent 57 is in Hong Kong. (laughs) Hong Kong. What about Hong Kong? What? Hong Kong. Why are we talking about Hong Kong? Hong Kong. Hodgkins raised the cone of silence. What? Raise the cone of silence! <laughs> Perhaps we could just talk softly, sir.
1: Yeah, uh, the cone of silence, alas, I rarely got in it. <laughs> that was a guy thing. That was definitely Don and, and Chief um one time I think I was in it I have a picture in my book of me actually in it which was you know a big treat for 99 but um when we were doing the show you know in retrospect I knew I was kind of being bathed in brilliant writing all along I and I it was very enjoyable to be part of that and uh, other than that, in terms of the show's effect on the public or impression that the characters were making on young people, girls for, in terms of me, on little girls, which I understand it did, um, we were going to work every day. It's almost like going to a factory. You know, you go to the studio and uh, get up at the 6. In fact, in the book, I take someone with me for a whole day on the set and say, this is what it's like, you know, from the time the alarm clock goes off and you just grab a trench coat and get in your car and at dawn and watch the watch the sky begin to become light and one little star left beside the moon and uh, roll into your parking spot. I mean, from then until nighttime at 7.30, when you become a whining baby saying, can I leave now, can I go home yet? Are you sure you're going to get to my scene? Will you let me know if you don't? Right. It's <laughs> right. like a kid. So that's, that was the reality of what I experienced was a job, a job that was very, I was very fortunate to have, but that seemed not connected to the rest of the world. It was only right. much later that I saw how it had connected.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, incredible. And you talked about that earlier, about the the advertising work in relative terms, traveling around the world, Mm -hmm. every day different. I could see why that in some respects was, you know, more appealing in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So the show ends after five years, an incredible run, and you end up doing all kinds of stuff, working on the Dean Martin Show, you were on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In on the Carol Burnett show and ended up being, uh, I want to say honored by much. I'm, I'm struggling to find the right word, but you become an icon and Andy Warhol takes to you and paints you. What was that like? You're still relatively young. Your career is absolutely booming and you off agent 99 and your work, with Revlon had become a real cultural icon and you're still pretty young.
1: I, uh, You know, I didn't experience it in those lovely terms. You paint this picture so beautifully, you know, of, of what it was. I mean, the year that Get Smart went off the air, I made $13,000 the whole year. That's all I made. I Nobody knew how to use me. I I began doing um, variety shows, but there are only so many variety shows, you know. I mean, there were a number of them, but they were on each one. I mean, how many times can you do it? And um, the Dean Martin show was my very, very favorite because he was oh the dearest, dearest person to work with. You know, we, we never had a conversation and you would rehearse on your own. He wouldn't, he didn't rehearse. Um, he was playing golf or whatever he was doing up until the last minute. And then Greg Garrison, who was this wonderful producer, produced the show. I, 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 he, I would rehearse with somebody and then he would say, okay, we're ready to shoot. The audience is there. They're all set to go and then Greg Garrison would yell bring out the kid and I would stroll Dean and then my job or who whatever actor was being you know used that 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 week um, our job was just to have fun with him and to get reactions out of him And and he was so responsive and it was just a darling experience being on that show.
2: You know, there's nothing like a good fish story. Even though you know it's a lie, it's fun to hear about the one that got away. Well, right now, Barbara Feldon and I have a fish story for you about the one that didn't get away. Is that you, Harry? Uh, uh, yes, dear. How was your fishing trip? Uh, terrific. Did you get anything? Uh-huh. Oh, great. Bring it in the kitchen, we'll have it for dinner. I don't think so, honey. Oh, do you like it well enough to keep it in your trophy room? Like it, I think I'm in love with it. Well, you must have had your hands full getting in the boat. That's nothing, you should have seen me in the parking lot. <laughs> Where is it? Where's what? The fish. Oh, the fish, I put her in the there. Well, how can you tell if a fish is a herd? Oh, uh, they got bigger fins. Really? How big is it? Oh, about a size 38. Oh, look okay. at this? Let me see the fish. Oh, no. Just a second. <laughs> What's gotten into you? All I want to do is to see the fish. Now get out of the way. I'm going to have a look at it. Oh. What are you doing, honey? I'm leaving you. Why? You've brought another woman home and put her in my bathtub. Hey, ma, that's not a fish. A woman, that's a fish. That's a woman. No, it's a fish. That's a woman with funny feet. Believe me, honey, it's a fish. Well, for your. Information, That fish is putting on lipstick and using my hairspray. Well, maybe she's got a date tonight. Yeah, the Charlie the Tuna.
1: And I thought I'm just going to do sketch comedy and be on these variety shows for the rest of my career. That's all I'm going to do. And in one year, they all went off the air and were replaced by movie- movies of the week. In one year. They were gone. And uh, you know, maybe it was a little more than a year, but it felt like a year to me. And that was just swept away. And uh, and that was that was a lot of fun.
0: Amazing. I remember all those shows so well. And uh Laughing in particular, we sus yeah. that and that was appointment television. You never missed an episode of Laughing.
1: Yeah, I did the first five and they wanted me to leave Get Smart, which I had the the right to do. I was still doing Get Smart, but there was no way <laughs> I was going to abandon 99 to somebody else. You know, right. so I, I did the first five and I and got to know everyone. And it was really it, it was George Slaughter is just one of a kind. You know, he is so far out and uh it, it, yeah it was also a unique show
0: so so, so funny also to the test of time so you end up in movies including one uh let's switch in 1975 with barbara eden uh yeah. and you continue to work uh i remember a guest cameo on tv uh years later in cheers as sam malone's love oh, interest. Yeah. Talk about just continuing to make it work. You didn't make a lot of money with Get Smart, but you continued to find a way to stay active, first in the variety shows, then TV, film. Just talk about making it as a working actress.
1: I knew from the beginning that I would have a shorter career than men, way, way, way shorter. So I was very careful to plan for that, and I'm glad I did. Uh, I, you said we did not make much money on, or that I did not make much money on Get Smart, which is really true. I, I, when the first year of Get Smart, I made twelve hundred dollars a week. Now, you know, they're getting a million dollars a week, you know, and, and I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. And uh, so it looks so puny. But I never, we did not have a contract for residuals then, so I didn't get residuals from Get Smart. um, But I didn't expect them, so I didn't feel bitter about it. I was very fortunate in having a couple of mentors, uh, financial mentors, early on uh, who guided me to become my own to become my own investor and uh, and i was like i mean i was right next to grandma putting it in her mattress i mean i was so careful and so i'm very grateful to them that out of very little uh, i was able to build enough so that i could enjoy my life and wouldn't have to worry once my career faded, which it inevitably does, unless you are Meryl Streep, you know, or, you know, <laughs> a phenomenal big movie star, which I never was. So, um, yeah, I did some television movies. <clears throat> the movie I did that is my favorite is Smile, which is was done for United Artists, I think. And it was a, a Michael Ritchie, the director, uh, wrote it with another writer and based on a beauty pageant that he had been uh, a judge at the year before in Santa Rosa, California. And it was both a send up of beauty pageants and and a kind of valentine. To Americana and how that fits in the, to the general s- silly sweetness of Americans, and uh, that was another brilliant piece of writing. And I really recommend if if people who have not seen that movie, it is a little gem. It it's it was an ensemble cast. Bruce Stern was the major star in it, and. Um,
2: It's a delight. The most popular spectator sport in America is not the Super Bowl or the Olympics or the World Series or the heavyweight championship. It's the beauty pageant. From the moment she's born, every girl is eligible. All it takes is a pretty face, a little talent, a lot of luck, and a great big smile. Smile. Oh, your heart is aching. Smile. Smile The story of a teenage beauty pageant, the girls who enter it, the people who run it, and what it does to a small American town. Just be yourselves and keep smiling.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Smile. And you've also continued to stay active as a writer. Uh, and I know you had a couple pieces in Metropolitan Magazine a few years ago. You've sort of done it all, Barbara, in front of every genre that's on the big screen, the large screen, theatrical work uh, and writing as well.
1: I, I love writing. I mean, you're a writer, I'm sure. I do write. So you know, I mean, I was almost late <laughs> late for this podcast because I was writing. I had an idea for an essay, and I was writing, and I kept my eye on the clock, and I, and I thought it's, oh, it's two two thirty, and then I thought, looked, and it was three thirty, and right. like, you know, like yikes! The time just melts if you're on a roll, you know, with an idea and you're developing it. Uh, I began writing when i was about 30 and i began therapy and i would i had these notebooks i've written in notebooks since i was 30 years old okay every day so you can imagine the uh, pollution the notebook pollution in my apartment i mean it, it is it, it it trunks full of notebooks and i wrote originally to just understand what i was feeling just to get it on the page later i wrote a book called living alone and loving it that was published by simon and schuster and in it i talk about storm pages where when something's bothering you uh it's usually because you don't you you haven't gotten to the core of it and and um and process it processed it so a storm page is when say you're curious about something, you just begin, it's like murder on the page. I mean, some pages, they would be like two words on the page. They would be so huge because it's the child in you is expressing something from the past and that probably doesn't belong in the present and where you're applying it. So, um, so I began, it was very easy for me to express myself writing and, and it became almost essential for me to do it. And then I, uh, I, I decided to write this book, a Living, Alone and Loving It, which was a series of essays on learning how to to live by yourself, uh, which is an entirely different technique than living with someone and um, depends very much on connecting. You know, just like in a marriage, you're connected, so you have a whole little social life going there. When you're on your own, it's up to you to do the work, to connect in a lot of ways so that you never have a feeling of being lonely. And the other, to be able to use that luxury of time to express yourself, you know, to create something. I, I mean... I have a friend who has made an art form of puttering i mean she loves organizing closets and you know and it, it yeah i mean my thing is writing some people it's painting and, you know uh so i wrote that and uh it's still around that was published in 2003 and then, you know, I was writing this and that, and friends said, "You know you've got to tell that story about Lucien, your husband." And so I began writing it, and it's been through so many different mutations. I wrote it as a novel. it didn't work. I wrote it as a shorter novel. It didn't work. I wrote it as a long memoir. It didn't work uh finally i I found a brilliant editor, Eli Gottlieb, who's a wonderful novelist. And uh, he teaches at Columbia and he edits on the side too. And I, I gave him the material and I said, I don't know how to make this work as a book. And he read it and he said, I do. You know, He said, here's what you need to do. And he taught me structure, which was like, I mean, it's, thrilling to learn something that seems later so obvious, but I, uh, and so, and he'd say, you know, you need to write a thing about your dad in it, his reaction to Lucien, you need to add a chapter on where you are now, you know, what your life is now, you need a summing up thing. Uh, you need to start with a bang and you start w- with a lyric you know, with something very poetic, he said, don't start that way. You can put that in later, but you've got to start with something, you know, upbeat something. And, uh, so I thank him for how well this book reads, because it's a very fast read.
0: absolutely uh, incredible stuff and such a joy to talk to you. And, and you're a genuinely inspiring figure. You know, we talked about those early days, uh, going back to 1957, and early days uh, in working in the business, get smart 65 to 70, and here you are 90 some odd years old and sharp as a tack and still absolutely knocking it out of the park. It's incredibly inspiring, Barbara.
1: Uh, You know, my thought about age, uh is we should just forget numbers you know we should never orient ourselves to numbers it's how you feel how your body is how well you've taken care of it you know i and how you are in life you know and it is such um um, in fact this is what i happen to have been writing about when i almost (laughs) Missed our start date here today. Um, How marvelous to be alive. How marvelous that we were even born and all of the coincidences that had to had to lock in in order for you or me to be who we are to ourselves. It's impossible odds, impossible odds and to just relish every minute and to and to explore and question and learn and travel and and be open to people and you know all of the wonders of life and that doesn't change and every every little minute every little present like we're this is the present moment is all anybody has for sure and you just want to make that shine
0: amazing well uh, an awful lot of us could learn an awful lot from you and i, I can't thank you enough for doing this this was an absolute uh, joy and a privilege and uh I, I won't be the least bit surprised when barbara felden and agent 99 are still around when you're 99 <laughs> and uh i grew up watching you and laughing and uh it's the privilege of a lifetime to get to have you here on great mind so thanks to you thanks to our mutual friend larry amarrose who is kind enough to connect us and uh wishing you only health and success and and happiness you are an absolute inspiration
1: it was a joy to be on your show and i wish i could reach through the screen and give you a hug <laughs> thank oh my you goodness so
0: I, I think i would collapse from uh <laughs> from sheer joy all right sweetheart take care
1: you too you. <laughs>